the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3. The fall of man is preceded by the fall of language. Ralph Waldo Emerson instructs. I gave the assignment voluntary, of course. We have no rules here other than candor, intelligence, and goodwill. Whose words I hope – I still hope – that Ralph Waldo Emerson's words maintain their meaning and have meaning. The assignment was George Orwell's essay on politics in the English language. There you will find him writing that in our time, quote, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible, close quote. He goes on to write, thus political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness. The great Enemy of clear language, Orwell says, is insincerity, close quote. Hold that thought, because today we learn the Biden administration is redefining a term we all thought we knew, recession. Yesterday, the Secretary of the Treasury was asked by Chuck Todd if the technical definition is two quarters of contraction. Why is she saying it's not a recession? And Janet Yellen responded this way, quote, that's not the technical definition. There is an organization called the National Bureau of Economic Research that looks at a broad range of data in deciding whether or not there is a recession. And most of the data that they look at right now continues to be strong. I would be amazed if they would declare this period to be a recession, even if it happens to have two quarters of negative growth. Close quote. There is so very much to unpack here, including hearing from the same mouthpieces a year ago that inflation was nothing to worry about. And transitory. Or that this administration promised to end the COVID pandemic. Or that last winter would be a winter of severe illness and death. Or that if you received a vaccine, you would not get COVID or go to the hospital or get sick. Or, better yet, all this from an administration that changed the definition of a vaccine and vaccination, at least for just one virus. A year ago, the CDC official and published definition for vaccination read, quote, the act of introducing a vaccine into the body to produce immunity to a specific disease, close quote. Overnight, without a press release, the word immunity was switched on the CDC website to protection. The CDC's definition of a vaccine changed from, quote, a product that stimulates a person's immune system to produce immunity to a specific disease to the current, quote, a preparation that is used to stimulate the body's immune response against diseases. Close quote. Produce became stimulate and immune became protect. Immune means not going to happen from the root for exempt. Protect means a lot less than that. If you are on a freeway with zero drunk drivers, you are immune and exempt from having a DUI crash. If you wear a seatbelt, you are protected a bit, but not anywhere near immune. Ninety percent of the population wears seatbelts. Tens of thousands of alcohol-related crashes take place every year. Over 10,000 people a year die in those crashes. Nobody ever said the 
seatbelt gives you immunity, but this administration said the vaccine did. That is what a vaccine does. Well, it failed. They simply changed the word when it failed, not the effort, not the policy, not the science, and mandated that we do so much more with the vaccine fervently. Cities across the country do this with all kinds of problems. Convicted felons are now formerly incarcerated persons or justice-involved persons, sounding much like a lawyer or a judge, I guess. Illegal immigrants are undocumented citizens. You lower the definition of the price of theft on a felony, say by redefining shoplifting from a felony to a misdemeanor, and wham, you've reduced felonies in your community. Though not the underlying problem of theft, just the categorization of it to give you the talking point. The left gave us this new dictionary, or revived it from the practice George Orwell described, You know some of the Orwellian semaphores. Speech is violence. Violence is mostly peaceful. Peacefully and patriotically marching constitutes insurrection. Gender changing is gender affirming. Keeping hands off a body is having clinicians operate in your body. Wanting those hands off the body is putting hands on it. Color blindness is racism. Discrimination is anti-racism. Voter suppression means more voters voting. And build back better means higher gas prices for your car and food shortages for your babies, and tampon shortages for women or menstruating men. And now we do it with the economy, evidently. A few years after George Orwell wrote his essay on politics in the English language, he wrote the novel 1984. One can recall echoes of what he wrote in politics and the English language in his opening to the book 1984, which used to be one of the more famous openings to any book. Today, I doubt anyone under the age of 50 could tell you what or where the following comes from. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. It's that last part we are discussing today. Why do you think they, the left, the administration, is so concerned about what they call disinformation? Why are they so coddled to notions of censorship when their very president presided over Supreme Court justice hearings as the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who cared most of his career whether nominees would support the First Amendment. After all, wasn't part of Ted Kennedy's greatest broadside against Robert Bork that he was insensitive to claims of freedom of speech and conscience? He was not. They are. Further along in 1984, is about the most chilling thing one can read. Quote, Do you realize that the past, starting from yesterday, has been actually abolished? If it survives anywhere, it's in a few solid objects with no words attached to them, like that lump of glass. Already we know almost every... uh, Already we know almost literally nothing about the revolution and the years before it. Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book has been rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street and building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And that process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless presence in which the party is always right. Close quote. I always reemphasize that last part, an endless present or presence. Think like the crisis industrial complex in which the party with a capital P is always right. Thus, the attempted disinformation board and trotting out of Barack Obama to speak to a global audience about the problems of mis and disinformation. 
He wasn't speaking about calling ivermectin a horse drug when, in fact, it won a Nobel Prize for its effects on humans. He wasn't talking about changing government and official government language on websites in the dark of night with no notice. He wasn't talking about anything but to borrow from Orwell, the insincere defense of the indefensible. So what hoodwinking is this administration now undertaking? Economic hoodwinking. They did it with health. They've done it with schools and education. For example, there is no learning loss. And now they are doing it with economics. The National Bureau of Economic Research cited above, along with every textbook on macroeconomics like Paul Samuelson's most famous one, defines a recession as, quote, a period of significant decline in total output, income and employment, usually lasting more than a few months and marked by widespread contractions in many sectors of the economy, close quote. Now, Decline over more than a few months would indeed constitute two quarters, a quarter being three months. And every definition in the world, operational as well as theoretical, defined a recession as two quarters or more of negative growth. Comes Secretary Yellen today to tell us that's not the technical definition. Okay, but this is an administration that lives on technical definitions to a fairly well and at great cost. How many people died from COVID, though they had underlying conditions or they had heart attacks, but also tested positive for COVID? Irrelevant. We count that all technically as a COVID death. This is an administration that lives on technicalities, so much so that when the definition does not match the reality proposed, the definition gets changed. See all the foregoing. How did Maxwell Scott, the newspaper editor, put it at the end of The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance? When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Of course, you can invent words, too, as we've seen with illegal immigrants and criminals and convicts or illegal and dangerous drug abuse, now called substance use, you know, just a regular use of an anodyne substance like, say, granulated sugar or ivory soap. I don't know how many of you know Demi Lovato's work, or for that matter, California's, but did you know there's now a definition or redefinition of sober in that state, and it requires the most exacting use of those words? It's called California sober. You heard of that? Get ready. Need a definition for it? not sober. That's your definition for it. In 1984, they invented the word black-white. The rationale was the durable for us to recall. This word, George Orwell taught us, has two mutually contradictory meanings. Quote, applied to an opponent, it means the habit of impudently claiming that black is white in contradiction of the plain facts. Applied to a party member, It means a loyal willingness to say that black is white when party discipline demands this. But it means also the ability to believe that black is white and more to know that black is white and to forget that one has ever believed the contrary. This demands a continuous alteration of the past made possible by the system of thought, which really embraces all the rest and which is known in Newspeak as doublethink, close quote. Note the most important part of this linguistic sleight of hand. It means one thing and gives aid and comfort to a party member if the party member stays loyal to the cause and party discipline against the evidence of plain facts and reality. 
but the point is to establish the sleight of hand with such saturation that it leads one to believing in the lie and then to move from belief in the lie to the knowledge of it. Heck, you might even just call it science if you are really having a hard time convincing the non-party members. Then you can make them anti-science. What they are, what we are, in reality, is outside the party. But we live in a country where the culture has become the party and the culture shapes reality. In the end, people need to remember Big Brother wins in 1984. I don't think people remember that. The tyranny wins. Let's not just make Orwell fiction again. Let's refictionalize the conclusion to the very thing we want to make fiction again. There's some good doublethink for you. Hashtag MOFA. Make Orwell fiction again. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. For those of you looking for a really remarkable, unique investment opportunity with a great return for investors, check out my friends at Y-Refi. They're offering a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% for investors, all in a collateralized, secure portfolio. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm. It's run by really great people where the investors do well by doing good for others, and you can too. If this interests you, check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, and then R-E-F-Y.com. You can also give them a call at 855-316-3087, 855-316-3087. They're a local company, and uh, you can visit with them. They won't give you a sales pitch. They'll just tell you about what it is that they do and let it speak for itself. Great people. Why refi? One of the things I wanted to flag, and I think we'll have him on as a guest uh, tomorrow, is uh, prosecutor and candidate for Attorney General Abraham Hamaday. You may not have seen he had a piece in the Washington Examiner over the weekend uh, that You know, it's refreshing to see uh, someone putting all these things together. It's titled, To Fight the Drug Crisis, the Government Must Secure the Southern Border. Uh, If you follow me on Twitter, I tweeted it out. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm simply at Seth Liebson. Um, Then you can access it that way or any other number of ways by searching for it. But, you know, uh, I'll just give you a little taste of it because this, too, is one of the things, one of the one of the terrible, terrible things that is going on in the country that the elites in Washington just don't seem to give a damn about. And for people who were shocked in 2016, for people who were shocked in 2016, how such plain spoken and perhaps unpolished a person as Donald Trump could become president, and neither of those should be seen as pejoratives. I like unpolished and I like plain spoken. Those are meant to be compliments, but not to the elites, right? But if the elites are were so surprised as to how someone unpolished and so straight speaking could be elected president, it's precisely because of the elite attitudes or the elite's attitudes towards the real problems facing people in this country. The drug issue is one of them. It's part and parcel of, yes, the border issue. The border problem, the border fiasco is an ill, a bad in itself. It's malum and say, as we 
were taught in Latin or in law. It's a bad thing in and of itself. But beyond the theoretical, beyond the theoretical, you have tangible problems that include, of course, the sex trafficking and the child trafficking. You have, of course, the crime. But also, yes, why is it more and more families will say that they know more and more in their own families and in their own communities, people who are dealing with drug issues that never used to be the case. Never used to be the case. Well, when you stop and think of 110,000 Americans dying every year from drug overdose, dying, that's not just you know having problems with drugs. That's not just addiction. That's not just accidents. That's not just other self and communal or familial or business harm, but death. The ultimate part of the overdose, death. When you have those kinds of numbers and people are just scratching their heads saying it's terrible, there is something that can be done about it. The fentanyl problem is the driver of that. It is the majority of those cases, the vast majority, about 80 percent, and about 95 percent of that problem is coming through the border. The border problem has become a public health problem and no one wants to talk about it. Abe does. Abe does in this column. He makes a great point. It's a point I've been making for years. When this country wants to be serious or attempts to be serious on a public health issue, boy, all the stops are pulled, aren't they? Change everything. Shut down businesses. Shame people. Close schools. Close churches. Close synagogues. No one's asking for that doesn't need to do anything like that to solve this problem. It's so much easier to solve. It's not some mysterious novel virus. We've done it before. We can do it again. It just takes a little bit of seriousness. It would take about one thousandth the seriousness this country gave to COVID, a disease that affected mostly the obese and the aged, when we now have a crisis in the drug abuse and drug overdose crisis that affects mostly the younger. When we want to protect the other populations from this thing, boy, we'll upend everything, including the Constitution, to do so. Do you know what solving this problem would do? It would solve the problem and protect the Constitution, which also guarantees us protection in safety and from invasion, too. It's not only a great public health thing to do, it would reassert constitutional rights as opposed to other public health crises we've addressed which tend to upend them there is no good reason not to do this anymore and all praise to abe hamaday for pointing that out in his piece in the washington examiner okay i'm seth leaps and we'll be right back Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. It is a uh, honor and a privilege to welcome uh, to the show Jason D. Greenblatt. He is the author of a brand new book he just had published, and uh, I have started. I dug into it. In the Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East and How to Stop Joe Biden from Unmaking It. And when this book was recommended to me, I have to tell you, you know, it's interesting. I haven't read I haven't read read a book on the Middle East history or contemporary in a little while. And it dawned on me when you do read a book about contemporary goings on in the Middle East, you are reading Middle East history. History suffuses everything up until this very moment. Mr. Greenblatt, congrats on the book and welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. 
Thanks so much for hosting me. I do this with first-time guests uh, routinely, and, and you being one of them. Uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, a little autobiography, and how you came to uh, be doing what you're doing with this book. Sure. I was uh, working for then-Donald Trump for about 20 years, rising through the ranks, became his chief legal officer, and then he announced his candidacy. He wanted to uh, have people on his team who knew and understood, uh, understood Israel and the U.S. relationship with Israel. So he asked me to join an advisory committee for Israel, and then eventually he won, uh, and asked me to join him in the White House to strengthen the U.S.-Israel relationship, to see if peace could be achieved between Israel and the Palestinians, and to try to achieve peace between Israel and some of its Arab neighbors. So I was honored and blessed to serve the United States of America while working at the White House. Front row seat and driver of the car in working on those Abraham Accords. Thank you, Mr. Greenblatt. I'm going to spell your name for the audience. They want to look at the book. G-R-E-E-N-B-L-A-T-T. It's a it's a it's an odd thing about this 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 world of foreign policy. A lot of presidents come in talking about or even thinking about being the next crafter of Middle East peace. Most of them, you correct me on anything I say that's 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 not correct, sir, but most of them tend to get their fingers burnt. This was one of the most unlikely things with one of the unlikely administrations to cobble it together because it took such a strong and direct stance that went against correct conventional wisdom to all kinds of Cassandra calls that X, Y, or Z, whether it's Jerusalem, whether it's Golan Heights, whether it's Iran, whether it's Soleimani, was going to break out into a huge war, and quite the opposite happened. Donald Trump's presidency yielded one of the most pacific moments and eras in Middle East peace, it seems to me. Uh, kind of ironic, in a sense. Is that is that is that a wrong way to look at it or categorize it? No, I think it's a good way to look at it, but I think it's because he was willing to look at the conventional thinking and say, this doesn't sound right to me, and in fact, do the things that you mentioned. Recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Let's remember that every presidential candidate made that promise. Only Donald Trump honored the promise. He followed U.S. law. He wasn't afraid when people told him that, you know, not exactly these words, but that blood would be spilled in the streets if he honored U.S. law. Right. Uh, he did not think that that was the right approach, recognizing that the only solution for the Golan Heights is to keep it under Israeli sovereignty. To He wasn't afraid to call a spade a spade with the Palestinians and say to them, look, I'm here to try to make peace, to try to make your lives better. But you have to do things in good faith. So I think it's because of his unconventional ways that he made such progress. And that he stood by the ally so, ally so definitively and so determinedly, it left no confusion and wiggle room for the enemies to think they could play games with this. Is that fair, too, to say? Yes, and I think that's really a very important point, you know, and I cover this a lot in the book, where mm -hmm. people say, for example, when Israel is attacked, typical State Department language, or even sometimes White House Department language is, okay, Israel has the right to defend itself, but then they go on to say, oh, but Israel needs to be careful because the Palestinians have rights too. Well, you know what, when a country is attacked by people throwing missiles and um, balloons that have incendiary devices in them that blow up and hurt people and blow up fields or put fields uh, on fire and uh, rocket attacks and terror tunnels. There's no whataboutism. It's Israel could defend itself because it's attacked. They're going to do everything they can, of course, to avoid civilian casualties. But stop saying that the people who are attacking them deserve rights to. People who are attacking them have to stop attacking them. Israel should defend itself. And let's stand unequivocally by Israel, which is what President Trump and the administration did.
which sent the message that the jig was up with a lot of these other players on the opposite side of it, and a lot of them came around. I have to take a quick commercial break, Mr. Greenblatt. I want to pursue that. When we come back, uh, for many years people had said, well, the Palestinians are really just kind of a tool of the larger Arab uh, Arab states' concerns and, and, and Arab uh, aggression or at least uh, Arab financing in the Middle East. Um, they're not taking that seriously. And people said, no, the Palestinians are their own really state and nation um, and part and parcel of the rest of the Arab world. Some of this Abraham Accord uh, yielded, I think, more of an illustration of the first point rather than the second, that there was no real serious um, love for an effort to push Palestinian statehood from these other states and that they were used as a tool. I would like to get Mr. Greenblatt's take on that when we come back. Jason Greenblatt is the author of In the Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East and How to Stop Joe Biden from Unmaking It. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have Jason Greenblatt with us. Jason D. Greenblatt is the author of brand new book, In the Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East and How to Stop Joe Biden from Unmaking It. Still summer reading uh, material here. Uh, Take to the beach if you haven't taken your summer break yet. I haven't. Mr. Greenblatt, it had been said for years that the Palestinian population was used as a pawn in the larger Arab-Israeli conflict. Others would say, no, they, they, they are taken seriously. They are on par with uh, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, you name it. Turns out, you know, after, after some of these Abraham Accords went wholesale into negotiations with some of these big players, whether it was Bahrain or Morocco or Sudan, maybe even Saudi Arabia, turns out may, maybe, maybe that former thought was right, that the Palestinians were kind of abused by their own, their own nation states for the past uh, several decades. So I want to focus more on the recent past. And okay. I think that while these Arab countries do uh, hope for a better future for the Palestinians, they are very frustrated by the Palestinian leadership. It's important to understand there's really two Palestinian leaderships. There's the Hamas, Iran terrorist puppets, the bloodthirsty terrorists who want to destroy Israel that rule over about 2 million Palestinians in Gaza and cause much suffering for the Palestinians. And then there's the leadership in Ramallah who, you know, control some of the Palestinian territories, don't do a very good job at it. And it's those leaders that really abuse the Palestinians and use them as political pawns. The Arab countries themselves want a better future for the Palestinians. They may or may not advocate a Palestinian state, and what a Palestinian state means means different things to different people. That's why we don't we never use that phrase two-state solution because it's just too imprecise as to what that would mean. Um, but they, you know, the Arab countries are frustrated by Palestinian intransigence and Palestinian uh, refusal to negotiate in good faith. We were not the first administration that the Palestinian leadership walked away from. Uh, that that's well put, uh, Mr. Greenblatt. Uh, thank you for that. Joe Biden recently went to Saudi Arabia. Uh, the president, uh, Donald Trump, did a lot of work with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia was, if you'll for- forgive me or permit me, um, a bit of an enigma, to say the least. And my question is, how does one in the West know where to side as between a regional fight between or perhaps it's a regional and global fight as between Iran and Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia is enigmatic to me. Iran tells you what they want to do. But Saudi Arabia is 
has proven itself over the years to be no great saint, to put it no higher. I remember after the 9-11 attacks, uh, every conference in D.C. that had to do with global affairs was was people worried about Saudi Arabia. What brought that around? What brought Saudi around? What brought Saudi U.S. around? What brought Saudi Israel around? So I think, again, here, too, we need to look at today's Saudi Arabia, not Saudi Arabia from decades ago. Uh, I think, in fairness, every country goes through its growth process, and I think today's Saudi Arabia is a country that has a vision to change, to uh, move into modern times. It doesn't mean they're going to give up their religious observance, so it's very near and dear to them. But they are trying to completely transform their society, their economy. Um, they're interested in having peace and living peacefully with its neighbors, including eventually Israel. They're not ready to sign the Abraham Accords yet. But if you compare that to Iran, Iran's desire is to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Iran's desire is to attack America, and Iran's desire is to take over most of the Middle East. So I think we need strong allies like like Saudi Arabia, obviously together with Israel and the UAE and others, to help fight against the Iranian threat. What has been done with the Abraham Accords is, I, I, it, to say miracle is is probably too strong, but it was quite amazing um, what was accomplished with it. And the second part of the subtitle of your book, How to Stop Joe Biden from Unmaking It, we are, I mean, all these gains, any foreign policy gain is reversible. We are on the precipice of reversing some of these gains, though, in a way. And I wondered if you might address yourself to the audience on that a little bit. Sure. So what what President Biden did on this trip, I think, has to be broken into a few parts. The general Israel trip was good. You know, he said the right things to Israel. But once you scratch through that surface of the right words, you have to dig deeper and understand that he and Israel are apart on the Iran deal. President Biden wants to try to solve the Iranian problem with diplomacy. It's not solvable with diplomacy. Iran is a wicked, evil regime. And diplomatically, if you sign a deal with them, all you're doing is buying a little bit of time, the way President Obama bought a little bit of time. In a couple of years' time, when that deal was over, had President Trump not canceled it, Iran would have had the right to have nuclear weapons. They also funded Iran with crazy amounts of money for them to foment terrorism around the world. So um, I think, unfortunately, President Biden has fallen into that same trap, trying to appease Iran. All he's doing is buying time. And he's also falling into the same traps when it comes to the Palestinians. He's trying to give them these symbolic wins, um, not insisting that they stop paying terrorists. They reward terrorists to kill Israelis. They give them, they call it a welfare payment system, but in actuality, people who get welfare payments who need it because they're poor get a little bit of money. People who actually harmed or killed Israelis get a lot of money. So he's not um, he's not engaging with the Palestinians the way he needs to in order to, one, help Palestinians with better lives, but more importantly, how to encourage them to make peace with Israel or at least come to some sort of accommodation. Mr. Greenblatt, author of In the Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East and How to Stop Joe Biden from Unmaking It. Last last part of this, uh, and this hopefully can be the first of many return visits, sir. It's a great book and learning a lot. Um, the Palestinian success story going forward, is it going to be dependent on the Palestinian leadership itself or the Palestinian people themselves figuring out what kind of leadership they want? Hamas or something far less aggressive and far more secular, 
um, is what's going on in what is referred to as the West Bank today. Uh, Ramallah, is that is that a hopeless leadership governed by uh, governing a population that really is with Hamas? How do you put together a people with two different kinds of leadership, one of which is fanatically religious, one of which plays, in my phraseology, footsie with the fanaticism, but isn't satisfactory enough to the fanatics and rules like a dictator autocrat who will not yield power? How do how do we how do we make sense of this? How do we go forward with this if if we can? Yeah, no, it's a great question, and the if we can might be the answer. There are polls that suggest that in what some call the West Bank, I call Judea and Samaria, the Palestinian areas there, if there was a free and free election, which of course there hasn't been and unlikely to be anytime soon, in actuality Hamas, the terrorists, would win. Um, that, if true, would be very disappointing and uh, further proves why Palestinians can't have a state, because that state would simply threaten Israel. So I hope those polls are not correct. The Palestinians that I know that I've gotten to become friends with over the years, uh, and there are many of them, are interested in better lives. They're interested in a better economy. They're interested in more freedom. They, While they blame Israel for certain things, they don't blame Israel for all their ills. They blame their leadership, uh, and including the ones in Gaza, by the way. The ones in Gaza understand that they're being subjugated by Hamas, but none of them are powerful enough to... Uh, change that trajectory. So until there is new Palestinian leadership, there really is no hope for peace with Israel. And even worse, there's no hope for a better future for them, certainly not the ones in Gaza. Well, Mr. Greenblatt, I uh, had the opportunity to talk with you today. I know it was a short uh, short couple of segments on a very large topic, but over a very good book. And I hope, as I say, this can be a down payment for a return visit. Let me give the information out one more time. Jason D. Greenblatt is the author the book, In the Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East and How to Stop Joe Biden from Unmaking It. Congrats on the book, sir, and thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Great conversation. I appreciate it. You betcha. We'll talk again soon, I hope. I'm Seth Liebson, and we will be right back. some of your afternoon with us. I appreciate it greatly. This book by Jason Greenblatt, if you are interested in the Middle East, it's a, it's a tour de force and it's very easy easy to read as well. Uh, not everyone has taken their summer break yet. I haven't. <laughs> we'll be doing that in a little while. We'll get, we'll get through the primaries first, which are almost over. I know, almost over. And then we'll roll up our sleeves and get to the real, the real fight, uh, which the stakes couldn't be higher, folks. The stakes just couldn't be higher. I know that it's trite in an election year to say that this is the most important election ever. But you look at where this country is and the things it's going through, the debates we're engaging in, debates over things that we thought were settled, having to do with everything from uh, race and human equality and what we're teaching our kids about that to simply the argument over American history to simply whether we're talking about the psychological and mental well-being of children who, until just about yesterday, we thought should not be exposed to sexual connotation and sexual ideas at age-inappropriate times and certainly inappropriate places like schools. That's the culture front. Don't forget, we have a foreign policy. We have a national interest as well in all of these elections, whether it's House or Senate. And yes, state legislatures and governors, they deal with a lot of international scene, uh, a lot on the international scene as well. So we'll get through it. I have um, I've done some uh, some pretty dramatic study over the years, serious study over the years on uh, Middle East and foreign policy, traveled the region quite a bit. 
read a lot of books on it. This is the newest and perhaps uh, one of the best. But I think what I like to say whenever I start a speech on the Middle East, the first thing everyone needs to understand before they go beyond anything else is this very simple and important precept. The Middle East is not the Middle West. It's an entirely different frame of mind. I think the success of Donald Trump in the Middle East is he understood that frame of mind. And I think the failures of previous administrations is they didn't. And I think the success going forward will be to understand it, too. Until tomorrow, thank you for spending some of your day with us. God bless you all and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.